Hi there, Glocal Citizens. Welcome back to the podcast that inspires a borderless mindset around manifesting a new world. I am your host, Florence Adu, coming to you from the ATL. Yes, I'm in Atlanta. I got a little break from the winter's bite, but it's not super warm here. I know I must have brought some rainstorms because we had a rainy weekend, but it's a beautiful day today, especially because I'm visiting with someone that I've known for more than half my life. And we were just catching up talking about how we met. And so we'll talk a little bit more about that. Let me get right to her bio. She is the chief executive officer and co-founder of MedTransGo, a healthcare technology startup based in Atlanta, Georgia. Prior to MedTransGo, she co-founded the Black Angel Tech Foundation, created to support and increase the number of underrepresented minorities in technology. She has also held positions at AT&T, Pfizer, and several innovative entrepreneurial ventures. She is a member of the Board of Trustees at the Westminster Schools of Atlanta and has served as treasurer of the Atlanta chapter of Jack and Jill. She's a board member for Blue Owl Capital and a board member for the Alliance Theater of Atlanta. She also serves on several task forces and committees at both Stanford and Columbia Business School, including serving as co-chair of the Stanford Lead Council, a member of the Stanford Humanities and Sciences Council, and a founding member of the Women's Circle at Columbia Business School. Dana Weeks, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Yay. Okay, so before I get to my first question, I'm going to give you all a bit of background. So I met Dana, like basically my first day of being at Stanford. So she was an orientation volunteer and she lived in the same dorm as I did. So for you Stanford folks, it's Otero and Wilbur Hall. And so she was an orientation volunteer. My next door neighbor, was a triple jumper. And so I think that's why they everyone's placed together. So she and another woman were the volunteers that were kind of just giving us the ropes and everything. And they're like, oh, we all are triple jumpers. We run track. And I was like, oh, I ran track, but you know, I'm not now. And they said, no, come down to the track. Track practices at this time, so come with us. And I was like, okay. And so you all know I ran track. And so that's how it actually happened. Okay. There's a little background. My coach had called the coach when I, when I, which I found out when he, when I showed up at the track, Brooks was like, oh yeah, your coach called me. I was going to come find you. And I was like, oh, okay. Totally meant to be. Totally meant to be. So I'm so happy that it's kind of full circle. We're now adults and doing our, our life thing. And so let's get started. It is so <laughs> nice to see you. It and is. there is um, beautiful nostalgia. And of course, I remember our great days yeah. as students, but uh, but really on the track team, yeah. being able to travel and hang out together. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that was fun times. <laughs> so let's get started. Where are you from? Where are you local? And what is your craft? So I'm originally from Vietnam, uh, but I grew up and was raised in New York, uh, first New York City, and then upstate New York for, um, you know, starting when I was about a year and a half old. And I stayed there until I went off to college at Stanford. I currently live in Atlanta, uh, which is, you know, surprising to me, surprising to a lot of people, just because I was truly a New Yorker, truly yeah. a global citizen. Mm-hmm. And I, I think in some senses, I would never have imagined that Atlanta would be that global home 
for me as well. And it has been. And, you know, between Stanford, I guess, and Atlanta, I have lived in Africa, I've lived in other parts of the country. And so I've now been here for 18 years. Wow. So that uh, almost makes me admit that this is home (laughs) for sure. (laughs) Okay. And what would you say is your craft? You know, I think my craft for what I do every day for my work. Um, I'm an entrepreneur Mm -hmm. uh, and I started a healthcare technology startup, as um, you mentioned in my bio called MedTransGo. But I think it was an evolution of wanting to be in an innovative space, wanting to be able to create things and solve for a problem that uh, needed solving and innovative in new ways. And so it's sort of taken lots of pieces of my background and brought it together. And then, you know, as you heard also from my background, I it's very important for me everywhere I am, every community I'm in, to be engaged and a part of the community. Mm-hmm. And so this business allows me to not only build a business that is earning revenue, ha- having uh, building teams, making a difference, but really like impacting our community by tackling health disparities and access issues with with what I what I do. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's wonderful. And so let's talk about inspiration. So I remember, were you Humbio? I was anthropology, actually, social sciences. So interestingly enough, I feel more and more having a social sciences degree is so applicable to everything that we do, both personally uh, and professionally, and just having that mindset and having that idea. And then the idea that I studied cultures, I think Mm -hmm. there's a stereotype, maybe what an anthropologist is, you know, definitely defined a little bit more on archaeology, but, you know, anthropology is at its core is is that studying of cultures. And yeah. so being able to look at it in a business context, look at it within a community, all of these things, the anthropology degree has actually served me quite well. And um, that's uh, been yeah. very, very valuable as, yeah. a, as a social scientist. I love anthropology. Like I love my anthropology courses. And so whenever I hear people are majoring in that, I'm like, that's great. Because there's just, as you said, like people think it's like, Art, artifacts and things like that, but it really is like understanding people from an earth base, right? Like this is what the earth is like. This is, yeah. yeah. And actually that major found me, I didn't find it. Oh, okay. So I, I really pursued and took advantage of this wonderful course catalog that Stanford had. And I just was like a kid in a candy store. And so I just was taking every class in English and in political science and sociology and, you know, even math and engineering and Humbio and all of those pieces. And ultimately, they were all kind of cross-listed into anthropology. And so when it came time to come up with my major, I really just had to go back and take all of the intro classes because I had taken the the course load that it defined what I was. And so I think that's a little bit of a preview or a reflection of how my life has always been, where I really have pursued and taken advantage of a number of different things. and, And it sort of settles into ultimately a path. 
Yeah. Um, but the path is really forged by discovery mm-hmm. and curiosity. Yeah. And when I you know, start walking and feeling like I'm along that path, I thought, oh, that's to- this is totally me. It makes right. a lot of sense. But it also brings me a lot of joy and happiness because it is the things that are interesting to me, the parts that I get inspired by. And it surrounds me with the people that have, you know, but both challenge, but feed mm-hmm. my intellect and my heart mm-hmm. in some senses. Mm-hmm. I love that. And so you did, you went to the Peace Corps. I did. <laughs> Which makes sense. Like about anthropologists, oh, cool, of course. I yeah, but that, that actually <laughs> lines quite quite nicely. But I think regardless of my major, if I were electrical engineering, I would have done the Peace Corps. Okay. So what was that What was that about? What? So you would have done it. And tell us a little bit more about how and why and what the process was to find your place there. So, you know, interestingly enough, my... My parents mm-hmm. met and married in the Peace Corps in Nigeria. Mm. And my aunt mm-hmm. uh, was a Peace Corps volunteer in Colombia. And when she was there, I looked at vid- pictures when ultimately JFK and Jackie O visited her when she was a Peace Corps volunteer. Wow. And so there's a lot of history there. And so in some senses for my parents, this was their introduction into the world. Mm -hmm. Like this was their ability to understand the world beyond the US. Mm -hmm. And so I think it's fundamental with how I was raised and, you know, again, being adopted from Vietnam and being somebody who was from another continent and had that part of me, but, but it also was really just ignited from a family that sought and looked, you know, through the, mm-hmm. the, the world. Mm-hmm. My mom is French Canadian okay. and so grew up speaking French in the home. Mm-hmm. Um, and she speaks, I think, five or six languages, wow. as does my aunt. And actually multiple family members on that side <laughs> speak multiple languages. Yeah. And being able to travel with them and just see how they fluently like go in and out and can basically communicate and talk to anybody. Right. And so part of me wanted the experience of living in a different country, specifically Africa, because I was also a a kind of a minor. I got a certificate in African studies because at Mm -hmm. the time they didn't have an African studies um, department. And so I wanted to be in Africa. And then I just really wanted to learn and be in a country where I can speak another language. And so I could really, and I thought, because I had studied French throughout my life, I thought that I would do French speaking Africa Uh And that would truly give me fluency in French. And um, I was very excited about that. And so I submitted for the Peace Corps and it's, it's kind of a bureaucratic system and you waited a long time. And ultimately the spot that I was offered was in Portuguese Africa, mm-hmm. which A, Having studied Africa, having known Africa, having been to Africa, I thought, what is Portuguese Africa? I hadn't. I I really sort of didn't understand yeah. that whole Lucifone world, mm-hmm. and so I said, oh, we'll try it out. And you know, so I ended up being placed in Cape Verde mm-hmm. or Cabo Verde, mm-hmm. and you know, it was a total introduction to 
Guinea-Bissau, Angola, Mozambique, wow. um, and then just the the culture and the feel of a uh, Portuguese-speaking world. Yeah. And so learning more about Portugal and actually really getting a good feel and understanding about Brazil. Mm. Um, so it's just, it was really one of those like new doors that opened to the world where, wow, the music, the dance, the culture, the history, and specifically with Cape Verde, it had a very, very fascinating, it has a very fascinating history that's influenced by Africa and the slave trade, but also whaling ships and New England. Mm, and right. so there were all of these mm -hmm. pieces that I was like, this world was also maybe meant for me. Yeah. And it is a mixed race society. Mm -hmm. So, you know, not getting into the full story, you could, I could talk all about it, but it was one of those wild things because I was adopted into a white family and I had brothers who were also black. So we, we, we looked like each other. But going to Cape Verde, that was a mixed race society, was the first time in my life, and I, I'd imagine a lot of people, African Americans in general, yeah. feel this when, when they, they get go. to Africa. Yeah. But this was a, even more particularly, like, I'm in Africa with mixed race folks that literally people could, people associated me with a specific island, with a specific family. Like I looked so Cape Verdean that they actually nicknamed, they called me Cape Verdean. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I can imagine. <laughs> that like yeah. they literally, that, that was literally my nickname, yeah. Cabo Verdeana. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's so, kind of a wild wow. Thing. So fascinated. I love that story. So what, what was your assignment there? What did you work on? I actually came in for a health education program. Okay. And interestingly enough, it had, this is probably a typical Peace Corps situation, but the, it was a UNICEF program that had ended by the time we kind of got there and were trained. And so I just sort of developed and came up with a community development project, which they ultimately changed into an actual project, nice. which was kind of a cool thing. Yeah. But one of the challenges with Cape Verde and their like, seven islands, I'm like totally blanking now, mm -hmm. I think. 10 islands, one of which is not inhabited, mm -hmm. but they don't have any institutes of higher education. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of youth end up going abroad to Brazil or Portugal or Europe or the US to go to school. But if you don't, there's a whole group of kids who are from like 17 when they get out of school, 16, 17, all the way to like mid thirties where they're really not doing anything. Mm. So I worked with this group. We created this group called Forum and we created social fundraisers, activities. We, we, we did activities to build the hospital. And then I ultimately too was working in the mayor's office. Okay. And so in the mayor's office, I developed uh, infrastructure. An interesting thing was that I just came from California, from the Silicon Valley. Yeah. So very familiar with the technology of, of, of scanners and computers yeah. and printers. And they had gotten a grant in the mayor's office to get all this like computer infrastructure and everything in. Yeah. 
but no one knew how to use it and how, what to do with it. Right. And so it was great happenstance that I could kind of come in and help yeah. do that and translate and then actually start writing grants to be sure. able to get more funding for the different parts of, yeah. of the community. That sounds like an awesome time. It was. Yeah, it was. Just be young mean, and really doing something. I mean, that's the whole point of the Peace Corps, right? Yes, yeah. it is. I mean, everyone was like, oh my gosh, that's so amazing. You know, you helping out other places. And I'm like, you know what? Peace Corps is about the Peace Corps volunteers getting helped by that yeah, community. It exactly. really is. It was wonderful to be a volunteer. And it was a unique situation for me because, of course, I didn't look like other volunteers. I didn't look American. Mm -hmm. And in fact, mm -hmm. the more I learned the language, nobody knew that right. I wasn't exactly. there. And so it gave different kinds of access, but also it was uniquely, um, yeah. it was, a, I mean, it was, an, it was an, a different an, privilege. It was a different yeah. privilege, sometimes silent, but it also didn't give me some of the privileges that my white volunteers had mm -hmm. like there was definitely this feeling amongst some of the volunteers like oh you know you're doing great actually it's a, a, a funny story it's actually really not funny but uh funny in some of my in my thinking yeah. there was uh some uh, portuguese volunteers that came and they were visiting and they were chatting with me um in creole in Kirilu. And um, when they basically said, oh, well, do you know Portuguese? And, you know, I could read and write in Portuguese, but I, you know, speaking, there was no reason for sure. me to have done the learned it at that point. And I was like, no, I, you know, I speak Kirilu. And the guy was like, I don't know how you're going to get anywhere in this world if you don't know Portuguese. Like he was so condescending. And so then I started speaking to him in English and he was like totally blown away. And then his whole thing was like, oh my God, you know, like, uh, and so I just thought, oh, this is so fast. Like, it's just so fascinating. The world is fascinating. Yeah. 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 Wow. So you've done the Peace Corps, then you come back mm -hmm. and, you know, you, I know business school was, is one of your stops yep. on, along the way. So how did you start to form this entrepreneurial self? that you are, because I feel like that's, that's the biggest part of who you, what your craft is, is that you're the entrepreneurial spirit. So how, how did that first start for you? I think a lot of entrepreneurs would give the same answer. Mm -hmm. I think I was always, always. an entrepreneur. Yeah. Like even in the stories that I've been telling you, mm -hmm. I, I create things, I yeah. solve problems yeah. in, the, in the way I think, and again, it's the orientation I was raised in yeah. Where I didn't have limits in terms of like mm. this is what you can do and why not and if you look at something and and I think just having the also the creativity yeah to think and imagine something mm -hmm. and create a vision around that and so I kind of was always that way and when I uh, got back from the Peace Corps I actually worked with my dad uh, for a startup okay. a, a large uh, satellite company uh, that was launching in West Africa. Okay. And so I spent a lot of time back and forth yeah. creating that launch specifically in Nigeria, but in that whole West African marketplace. And then it was then when I started realizing, I'm like, the next step really would be business school and just getting the fundamentals of, mm -hmm. you know, running, running, but not even just running my own business, but just like business. Sure. And, you know, that exposure and that you know, skill set mm -hmm. was would be helpful professionally, but 
you know, personally. And so I came back and was in the city. And so it just was natural for me to be able to stay in New York. And I'm so glad that I went to Columbia Business School because you did get to interact with the world. You did get to interact with within the city. And, you know, my classmates um, were from from all over the world, but, you know, also local. And it just, it was, it was fun. It was fun. It was hard work. Yeah. And, but it was, you know, two years of concentrated, just yeah. beauty. Yeah. <laughs> I, just, I, let, I mean, I was so happy. I mean, it was, yeah. you know, great networks, great exploration. Mm-hmm. And I did with a couple friends really stayed on the track of uh, venture and, mm-hmm. you know, thinking through there. And so mm-hmm. came up with a couple of business ideas mm-hmm. even then. Mm-hmm. And so coming out of business school, I think I was married at the time mm-hmm. and we were just, I was navigating, we were navigating our lives and what's next. And so I, at this, he was uh, in his residency. So I'm like, I got to get a job. Yeah. <laughs> and so I went into corporate America for a while, which was also, I think, a great education sure. that has helped me as an entrepreneur Mm -hmm. to understand that and to have a lot of the resources that I wouldn't have had Mm -hmm. just going straight into a startup. Mm -hmm. And so that's kind of how and where I got that path. And then I started some other things along the way before I ended up with this. Okay. So you've gone to business school. Now we're here in Atlanta. So why the where? How did you come to be living, working and playing where you are currently located? I think a lot of it was driven by my family. Mm -hmm. And so at the time I was making decision when my husband was leaving his fellowship, he's an orthopedic surgeon and he was finished with his fellowship in Boston. Mm -hmm. And by going to Boston for the year for his fellowship, it actually took us out of New York. Mm -hmm. And the act of being of leaving New York gave us the idea that we could actually exist outside of New York. Okay. Had we not left New York, I don't think we would have ever left. Sure. So I had a, I had my daughter at the time and we were just sort of looking at opportunities and where we could both raise our family as well as have our professional careers. And, you know, family is very important for myself, my husband, and this is kind of a fundamental priority. And so I think a lot of Atlanta was being able to find a home there where we could find some sort of balance between raising a family and having a life Mm -hmm. professionally. Mm -hmm. Sounds about right. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, um, you know, just the space, the the activity. And and, uh, in fact, you know, it's interesting being part of the tech ecosystem and the entrepreneurial scene down in Atlanta. And what is great about it is it is also, you know, in, in some senses, growing and thriving. And it's, you know, even within the last 20 years, it's, it's nothing like it was then. It's really, really developed in many ways. And it's very diverse. Mm -hmm. And that's another really exciting piece that you really see, especially a thriving African-American community that also, you know, involves and allows for moms and parents Mm -hmm. to afford to take the chance sure to be an entrepreneur so you know you you can't 
you can't live on the, you know, the couch, the, the you know, stereotypical uh, entrepreneur, like you can't live on someone's couch while you're starting your business right. if right. you have a child. Right. If you have, I mean, people do it mm-hmm. and it's just, you know, this, this gave us the opportunity to try. Yeah. Try and do a lot of these different. Um, right. Things. Right. Okay. So you mentioned tech. And so I am interested in how tech became a big part. I mean, probably, I mean, you did the satellite company. So I think that was always, and then we were in Silicon Valley. So there's always been that in you, but tell us about the, the Black Angel mm-hmm. Tech Foundation. Yeah. Well, in advance of that, actually, I worked at AT&T. Okay. I started ah, when I got yes. here, I worked at Singular okay. um, and was actually in charge of social media apps and helping to develop our premium content platform mm-hmm. with with the team there. And, and I think that really you know, was in line with the very interesting discovery and, and Singular before it kind of transformed into AT&T sure. when they bought Bell South was a big startup. Yeah. And it was, yeah. it, it had that same energy. And right. so it was super fun to be at the forefront. And this was like back in the MySpace and yeah, Facebook the early, days, but it was, yeah. you know, prior to the ubiquity that we see with smartphones. Mm-hmm. You know, we were using Blackberries, but it was, you know, yeah. just, you know, in fact, I was there at the time that the iPhone was launched um, ah, with AT&T. So it was like a yeah. big, huge moment, transformative moment. And I was kind of part of that. Sure. And so interesting at that time, also, it was my 20th reunion from college. Mm-hmm. And the this really great writer, Jody Cantor, did a front page article about our class at our reunion and okay. she spoke to me about it just because I was in tech and not as an entrepreneur, but in, right. in tech. And it was a very thought provoking, actually provocative somewhat, basically sort of making the claim of like, wow, you've had this unbelievably successful class in terms of startups and the boom of mm-hmm. um, of Silicon Valley. Like your timing was like impeccable on that side. Yeah. However, it's really the white men who were successful. And so it was a mm. it was a story written about gender, but it also had undertones of like, you know, the lack of black people sure. and it just even in Silicon Valley. Yeah. And so we were at a summit actually here in Atlanta and we started talking about this article and like thinking we can solve this. We can create some of this network. Look at the look at the room of Stanford grads who have you know, been successful sure. in so many different ways, but maybe we didn't have the same luxuries to be able to have taken advantage of a wild, wild west that was really undefined. Mm-hmm. Maybe it was because we weren't in the networks to kind of be tapped and said, hey, you know, let's let's do this. Let's work on some of those pieces. And so we said, well, let's create both a tech fund to create capital, mm-hmm but also a foundation to create those networks that mm-hmm. Silicon Valley was fundamentally built on. Mm-hmm. So they had their they had their their attorney, they had their uh, accountant, they had their, you know, the, every all of the go-to was all sort of built in that infrastructure yeah. and they could just plug and play and so 
we could create that through this foundation to help give those access, give the information, because a lot of, I think, success can be shaped at the early seed stages. Like if you have negotiated a really bad contract and you basically don't own anything, fast forward and you you sell for a billion dollars, you may end up with nothing. And so, you know, that was the premise behind that. And it was just also a great opportunity to reconnect with classmates and, and fellow grads, but also with the tech ecosystem yeah. here in in Georgia and just in general. And if you looked at the numbers and you still look at the numbers, access to capital, presence, and not just presence in as as founders, but presence in all different yes. areas, presence in engineering, presence in financing, presence in the legal none of that is really has moved that much and you're you know looking at the low single digit numbers percentage wise and you know i mean this can go on for a long time because this is still quite a problem and if you look at black female founders and their ability to raise money which is so instrumental to be able to you know, invest in and grow your business to a larger scale. We have many unicorn examples, but not enough for the amount of engagement and the um, incredible amount of ideas that we have. So, yeah. So when you were with the fund, were there, were there times when you felt like you could have been doing more? So for example, like just being in that space, you're doing wonderful work. But so when you had founders that were at a place that, because I feel like there's a place where there's there's something about a business that they just need something. Yeah. And there's there's just kind of, like, I, I think it's kind of the VC conundrum as well. Like, I feel like VC funds also often feel this way generally is like, oh, there's this, but there's something we could have been doing more. Did you ever feel that way about the the group, the cohorts that you were working with and, and how did you try to change the foundation to solve for that? Well, I mean, I think by nature of who I am, yeah. I will always feel like I could be doing more. Yeah. And and in some senses I do and and you know, I think they even today, and now this is probably like a like a decade ago yeah. that I'm mm-hmm. that I was doing this. So even then there was definitely more that needed to be done. And and it was almost like we came up with this idea or we we're talking about this before it became a thing because it's a thing now because it, yeah. it's a thing now. And then, of course, with um, uh, George Floyd's yeah. murder, all of a sudden the world was like, oh, my gosh, we got to pour a lot of resources. We're now seeing a lot of that retracting. And it is very fascinating to see this whole life cycle. But, you know, and we're still in it and hopefully we'll get you know, re reengaged, and we'll start to see the reinvestment within our communities. And let's hope we, we do it more. ourselves, because I and feel like exactly, that's really where exactly. But we need to have enough of those right. folks who have made it and can invest not only funds, although that is actually a very critical piece, but their time, mm-hmm. their insight, yeah. their their network. And I think that's the more that I'm kind of speaking to is that like it's yeah. it just not big enough. It's just you know that. Yeah. And so I would answer your question mainly with the idea that we were able to see and have access. So I felt so grateful that I had access to so many really great ideas. Mm -hmm. 
I had access to some that weren't so great. And so you're kind of like, hey, look, (laughs) from me to you, this isn't that great. But, But at the same time, there are fundamental things. Like you could be an amazing entrepreneur and visionary and scientist or technology whiz, but then you have no idea how to run a P&L. Right. You have no idea how to build a team. You have, you know, or you might be able to build a team, but you don't have the technical know-how. And so it's going to cost you hundreds of thousands of dollars just to build out whatever, if, especially in technology. Mm-hmm. And so if you don't have access to funding, how are you going to do that? And so basic things, which, you know, unfortunately, even me with a very strong network from wonderful schools and a skill sets in yeah. business and, you know, connection and all of those things, it's still hard. Like being an entrepreneur is hard. You're reinventing things all the time. You make a lot of mistakes. You don't, you have to be vulnerable a lot of the time. You have to ask a lot of questions. You have to be constantly checking in with people and, you know, and, and it's, you know, and it's a lot of hard work. And so, you know, I think having three kids, which I do, and having three teenagers, while also starting a business and running a household and all of those things, in some senses, I love it because my time is my own. And like, I, th- I thought one day when I was picking up my sons from camp, I was like, I can take today off because I'm the boss. Like, it's wonderful. <laughs> yeah. um, but at the same time, I'm also always working. Yeah. And it always is something that I have to do, but I, I don't know that I can navigate that working in a, a, a structured sure. corporate, you know, setting or, you know, to be able to do and stay engaged with Stanford or stay mm-hmm. uh, and being a part of different boards and staying an active mentor or engaging with people within our community, especially younger folks, and, and that's so important to me because that really feeds my soul. And so I could definitely be doing more. There's definitely so much need. And I see this as an entrepreneur. I'll take any free or potential help I can get because you can always, you, you always need yeah. assistance sure. and you just never know. It's sure. good to even just talk to somebody in a safe way, sure. but there's only so much yeah. time. Yeah. in a day and there's also challenges in in our society and our structure that even those with lots of access face right 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 good answer <laughs> well at least thorough <laughs> okay so we're i want to next talk about med go because that's kind of the natural progression of this conversation about entrepreneurship but i do want to ask you about your global speak so we were speaking about living in portugal uh, and and uh, Lusophone, yeah, Lusophone, mm-hmm. um, Africa. You spent time in Nigeria. You lived on the East Coast, you lived on the West Coast. So what would you say is Glocal Speaks? We want to hear what you hear. So please share a word, a phrase, or a saying that has been a meaningful part of any of your local experiences and why or how you've come to value it as Glocal Speak. 
I would say the phrase, and again, I'm, I surprise myself that I'm choosing an Atlanta based <laughs> phrase, yeah. is this phrase that a lot of people have, actually there's a company that even is promoting it and it's Atlanta influences everything. Oh, okay. And I've never heard that before. But okay. okay. Well, I'll <laughs> get you the t-shirt. <laughs> but a lot of it is that, you know, Atlanta has been a hub of many movements, um, the civil rights movement, the, the cultural in terms of its foundation to hip hop and music and... And now film and television. And now film and television. And so there really has been a huge part of not only Atlanta, but then I think the black community in Atlanta that we feel very prideful of, but also it just gives you that extra little pep in your step to realize when you are Elsewhere in the world, I went to I, I went to visit India actually last year for work, and I went to the Gandhi Museum, and there was a whole section on MLK and Atlanta, and I thought, you know, it's so interesting because Atlanta really wasn't on my map, but it really is if you look at it. It's just there's parts of what Atlanta has done and continues to do that is really like representing not only the U.S. and the American culture, mm. but the global culture. Sure. And I think that there are some really wonderful pieces that Atlanta is contributing. If you think about the CDC and the base that it's based here and Coca-Cola and UPS and Home Depot and all of these like companies also that were started yeah. here, there is just this real... DNA piece that sort of silently, but powerfully is really impacting change. Yeah, I'd have to agree with you because I've increasingly, because family and friends, I have quite a few friends like you that moved from New York Mm -hmm. to Atlanta from all all over the U.S. And then it's a melting pot. So it's so, as you say, it's so global and it's one of the busiest international airports. It is the busiest airport. And I think part of it is that we only have really one versus like New York, you have three. But it's, it allows us to go anywhere. Like I can do a nonstop trip to Nigeria, to Seoul, Mm -hmm. to, you know, pretty much most places in Europe. Yeah. South America, Europe, South Mm -hmm. America. Mm -hmm. And then throughout the U.S. because it's a hub, but it also, you know, I, I, we think of it and that Delta is another really great one. I mean, yeah. it's our, it's, yeah. it's literally so easy mm-hmm. to get in and out of this, of this city. And so as a result, you see the influence of people from all over the world coming in, engaging. And it was really kicked off with the 1996 Olympics, Olympics. Yeah. Uh, and that infrastructure was built. Yeah. And now it's really just this beautiful mix where you see not only the influence of the black community, which I think is really a powerful piece of our history and our current culture, but Asians, Ukrainians. I mean, we just see because it's an easier way of life. Yeah. You see the influence, I think, of the world. Yeah. Here. Absolutely. Absolutely. 
Thanks for joining us for part one of my conversation with Dana Weeks. Be sure to come back next week when Dana tells us more about her successful startup, MedTransGo, as well as her mindset hack and her work on corporate boards. As always, new episodes Tuesdays at localcitizenspod.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Please like, share, subscribe, tell a friend, or leave us a review up to a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts, leave us a review. We are looking for a hundred reviews in 2024. I think if you're listening and every week you're listening, then you must like it. So please leave us a review. Until next time, bye for now.